0: Good morning. Thanks, Tim. That's good. Um, Great to see you guys here today. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed getting to sing out uh, this morning with you. So it's nice that um, some of these things are slowly changing and really enjoyed it. Thank you for leading us in worship too, Lindsay. I don't know if you guys realize, but today is July 4th. Um, So I guess it's kind of weird if we were to celebrate Independence Day here, right? Although... I can't remember who was saying this, but somebody was like, maybe it's a good thing that things were separated uh, between the UK and uh, America um, all those years ago. But anyway, um, it is the 4th of July, which in America, which is where I spent, uh, I guess, the previous 14 years of my life, um, it's a big deal today. Uh, and it would be made mention of even in a service. It's crazy, like uh, how how big of a deal that is there. And um, anyway, it's just funny that it's up here on the calendar today. So I just wanted to acknowledge that with you, as I am a U.S. citizen. So um, thank for thank you for bearing with me with that. So a uh, couple of quick things as we get going. Um, well, I guess not really a couple. Just one one thing before I. Dive into some notes that I have here and all of this. I want to start by asking you to think about like why are you here? Like why are you here this morning? Because I really I really don't want for us to just be here together to kind of check that church box. My hope and my prayer is that each of you would answer that question in that that you want to meet with God this morning. And so with that in mind, I'm just going to pray one more time and say, God, please, please meet with us. Please speak to us through your Holy Spirit this morning and trust that he'll answer that prayer. And so the invitation is that you would pray that prayer with me and that you would genuinely mean it. So think about that for a moment while you're here, and then let's pray together. Lord, it's true. It's very easy for us to get into patterns of life and behavior and, and we confess that even our behavior with church and with gatherings can become very much a pattern that we're familiar with. And so Lord, we want to be quick to, to pause now and to acknowledge our need for you to work and our desire for you to speak in these next moments. And also acknowledge the fact that none of that happens without your Holy Spirit being here and working amongst us. And so we put the invitation out there again to say, God, please, please speak during this time. Speak through your word, even speak through me, Lord. Be lifted up in these next few moments together. Thank you. Amen. Have you noticed that having even a slightly warped view of someone or something can have major cause major issues down the line? Uh, there's a story that reminds me of this that I had to study back when I was in academy. I, I'm not sure which particular grade I was in, maybe s five or s six, but we had our required reading in our English class, and I remember being vehemently opposed to having to read this book called Pride and Prejudice. And my English teacher noticed my vocal nature on this. She was a great teacher. She came to me like one-on-one and got down to my level and said, hey, I, I want you to at least give this book a chance. I want you to at least try reading it because I think you'll like the story. So with much protest, I started to read and I made this shocking discovery that I actually really liked the story. In that particular story, there is Elizabeth Bennett, who is this main character, and she has a view that she believes is right about another character called Mr. Darcy. And this view is that he's a very pride-filled, arrogant, rude, self-righteous individual. And so when Mr. Darcy all of a sudden kind of busts into her world and asks for a hand in marriage, she is shocked. By the way, he does that in an interesting way. He, he tells her that against his better judgment, he would like to marry her, which if you're wanting to propose, that's not a great way to do it. But he goes to her and he says this, and she's indignant, she's upset, she refuses him But that moment is this great turning moment in the story, because all of a sudden, all that she believed to be true, well, not really all of a sudden, in the next days, weeks, months, all that she believed to be true about him starts to deconstruct. And she comes to the realization that he is actually quite a different person than the one that she had built up in her mind. And I say this because we're all capable of misunderstanding of picturing people wrongly, and this is actually true even, I believe, when it comes to Jesus. We can look to Jesus and think we have a right view of Him, but in fact we're picturing Him as too small, too powerless, and, and perhaps even too human. Now don't hear me wrong, He was human, but He also was God. So as we begin a new series, my hope and my prayer is that it'll be useful in expanding our view, to see Jesus rightly, that from our time together, not just today, this week, but in the next coming weeks, that we would have a fuller, more comprehensive comprehension of of who this Jesus is, and that it would lead to not just some better understanding in our minds, but a greater worship and devotion in our hearts that would lead to surrender And so to do this, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on seven signs that are found recorded in the book of John, written by the disciple John, one of Jesus' close friends, one of the close disciples to Jesus. And you may be sitting there thinking, okay, well, what is a sign? What defines a sign? If you were to look up a Bible dictionary, it may say something like this, it is a mark or a token used as a proof. And you're like, okay, I don't know if that really helps. Well, think of it like this, if you had a very expensive antique violin that you believed was a Stradivarius, by the way, that's a very expensive violin, the way that you would know if that was true is that you would look for a mark or a label, a sign inside of that that would be written in a certain way, in a certain position that would prove its origin and authenticity. And so, in the book of John, what we find is seven signs written specifically to help us see the origin and authenticity of this Jesus. These seven signs are there, and and we look at that and we're like, okay, why seven? Well, seven is a symbolic number of perfection. And so as we look at these things, we're going to see that most of these seven signs are miraculous. Not all of them, but are miraculous things. Things that go beyond the rational, supernatural things. And as we look at this list, we may think, okay, was was there only seven things that Jesus did? Were there seven signs in, in total count? Well, to answer that, I want to ask you to turn with me to a Bible. Let's go to John chapter 20. We're going to go back to John 2, but let's start out in John 20. In my particular Bible, it's actually the very last page of John, and so we're going to read John 20, verse 30. We're answering this question, did Jesus only do seven signs? And in verse 30, it gives us a very clear answer. It says, now Jesus did many signs, many other signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So the Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle John to write this book of John led him to write about seven things specifically. Why these seven though? As we look at these seven things, like why why these seven ones in particular? Well, again, John clearly articulates that for us in the very next verse. If you read verse 31 with me, it says, But these, as in these seven specific signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So why are these seven signs brought to our attention? So that we would believe. To believe what? That Jesus, it says here, is the Christ, the Messiah. And what happens if we believe that to be true? Well, if we believe that to be true, it says right here that we may have life in his name. This is a theme that you'll find all the way through the book of John. This idea of belief and life. If you were to go to John 3, that very famous passage, it says there that you would have eternal life. If you go to John ten ten, another famous passage, it would say that you would have abundant life. So these seven signs are written to help us believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to have eternal and abundant life. And the first of these signs is found in John chapter 2. It was our scripture reading today, and I'm going to start flipping back there to John t- chapter 2. And it's the story that we heard of Jesus at this wedding where he turns water into wine. Now, just a moment of confession here. For years, I I found this story a little bit strange. But I think it's good for us to spend some time digging into it and saying, okay, what's this about? What we know contextually is that Jesus is here in the early, very early days of his ministry with a few of his disciples. And they're at this wedding together. They're just kind of figuring each other out. Like, it's just a couple of days that some of these guys have been following, following along with this guy that they've heard is maybe the Messiah. And they're like, okay. So they're here with him, and, and Jesus' mother is there as well. And she somehow finds out some insider information of what's going on at this wedding, and that is that the wine has run out. And we've got to understand, like it's already been articulated, this would have been a very big deal It would have been an embarrassment to the family. We've got to understand, culturally, weddings were very different things. But to maybe help us transpose a little bit of that, imagine if you were at a very fancy wedding, and as you sat down at that fancy wedding at the reception for a dinner, imagine if the wait staff brought out the meal to serve to everybody, only to discover that two-thirds of the guests have food, but the other third don't. I mean, that's the sort of situation that we're talking about here as we read in verse three. And so I'll read a couple of verses here with you. When the wine ran out, verse three, the mother of Jesus said to him "They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Let's take a pause here and ask a couple of questions. One question is, what's this story all about? I think that's a good question to ask. Additionally, how does it produce in us belief? Again, if if the signs are written, and we know this is a sign, I mean, if you look at verse 11, it says there, this, the first of the signs that Jesus did. This is a sign, and we know the signs are there to help us to believe. How does this particular miracle or this story help produce belief in us? Well, as we ask these questions of focus, it may be helpful to say, what are we not to focus on? Because there have been a few things over the years that people have read into this story and maybe focused too much on. One of those is to believe that this passage is talking about the benefit or the ills of the consumption of alcohol. Okay, this passage does talk about wine, but it's not predominantly talking, it's not a, a teaching on the benefit or the ills of alcohol. Additionally, this is not a passage that is giving us instruction about the significance of of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yes, she plays a role here, but that's not the focus of the story. One thing that we can actually find rather troubling is the way that Jesus addresses Mary. Because culturally to us, when we hear that word woman, we're like, well wait, that sounds kind of disrespectful for us. When he says, woman, you know, what does this have to do with me? To us, we're like, "Whoa, hold on, Jesus, that sounds a bit rough. Well, we've got to understand that we've got to take those connotations a little bit off that word. I don't believe he meant this in a negative way at all. In fact, one of the things that I found very helpful was to discover that if you were to flip forward to John 19, there's a story there, and I believe it's the most tender story that we have between Jesus and his mother because Jesus in that moment is dying on the cross. He's literally hanging on the cross, dying. And he looks down and he sees his mother and he sees the the disciple John standing near her. And he says, woman, exactly same word, this is your son. This is Jesus looking after Mary in this moment. It's the same term, the same word that is used here. What is perplexing, maybe even more so, is what Jesus actually says to his mother in verse 4. He says to her, my hour has not yet come. And we're like, okay, what, what do you mean by that? Like, What does that mean in particular? This is actually the first appearance of a theme that we find all throughout the book of John. So in the book, book of John, there's this conversation that we'll, we'll see all the way through it where Jesus talks about his hour. Or John talks about Jesus' hour throughout the book of John, and and, and it's interesting to actually note that there's this link between Jesus' hour and these seven signs, and it all hinges around, this is a bit of a side note, but it all hinges around John chapter 12. By the time we get to John 12, as you read through the book of John, all seven signs have happened. And at John 12, as you go into John 13, Jesus stops talking about his hour not being yet, to starting to say, my hour has come. So it's just something interesting to know, but what is this hour all about? Well, it's referring to the ultimate purpose that Jesus came to be amongst us for, and that was for his death and for his resurrection. Jesus came for much more than to just show up and check on people. Jesus came ultimately to die and to be raised to life again. These are the acts by which Jesus secured for all of those who would believe in him the forgiveness of all of their sins and their ultimate victory over death. So if we put that back into the context of the story, it still seems strange because Mary comes to Jesus, says, we're out of wine, and Jesus responds to her and says, well, what does that have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. It's a little bit like him saying, what does that have to do with me? I haven't died yet and been raised to life again. You're like, what are you playing at here, Jesus? Well, to help us understand this, we can actually look across to John chapter 4, and there's a story there we call the woman at the well, the story of the woman at the well, and it's an interesting story, a bit of a strange story as well, where Jesus talks with a lady, and he's talking with this lady at this well, and he asks her initially for something to drink. But moments later, Jesus tells her that he is able to give her living water and she won't ever thirst again. That it will totally quench her thirst. And I think, in a similar way, as we look at John 2, we've got to see that Jesus is saying here yes, these people are thirsty. Yes, this party has run dry. But the quenching of their thirst needs to come from something much more than wine that ultimately the refreshment they're looking for can be only found through grace, the grace given once Jesus' hour has come, once he has died for the sins of the world. There's this deep symbolism in what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, yes, what, I, what they really need is what I will offer them through, through my death and through my resurrection. So if we come back to the story, I mean, sorry, back to the question and ask what's this story about, It's about lifting up. It's about glorifying and making much of Jesus, like all of the signs are. And in this particular story, we can maybe focus on three primary ways that Jesus is glorified. Firstly, Jesus is glorified through the symbolism here in this story. There's so much symbolism embedded into this story, more than we'll unearth in just a few moments here. But I want to speak about three quick layers. One layer we can call quenching. And that's what we've just spoken about. This is the picture where Jesus provides that which truly satisfies. This is the, the imagery that, yes, the, the party had run dry and it needed refreshment, and He provides that abundantly, as we talked about. He abundantly provides that. And it's interesting to note that in verse 10, it says that the, the host of the party was like, the master of ceremonies was like, hey, we've waited here, now this is the good one. And much in the same way, the life that Jesus gives us is the good stuff. It's, it's the stuff that we've been waiting for. A second layer of symbolism we could maybe title as cleansing, you may have noted that in verse 6, when it talks about the jars that were used, it says the six stone jars therefore for Jewish rites of purification. These were jars that were used for cleansing, for purifying people ceremonially. And Jesus chooses to use these to, to do this miracle of transformation And it's, again, symbolic of of the cleansing that Jesus offers us through his blood, which, again, what do we use when we take communion to symbolize blood? Wine. There's all this symbolism built into this. We could talk about the symbolism even in the transforming. Somewhere between these jars being filled with water and it being taken to the master of ceremony, it turns miraculously into wine, And much in the same way, we as Christians are transformed and we hope that one day we'll be reunited with Christ who is the bridegroom. Again, there's these layers upon layers and we could talk much about this, about the symbolism. And as we do that, we're like, wow, how amazing that one act, one miracle isn't just some random thing that happened, but there's all this symbolism, all these layers of symbolism in it. But Jesus is also glorified in the belief of his disciples. We don't know how many people were on the inside as to what was going on here in this moment as the wine ran out. From all that we know, we know that Mary, the servants, and the disciples were aware that the the supply of wine had run out. And Jesus is there with these disciples who He has recently, like days before, called to come and to follow Him. And they're thinking, okay, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one promised who is coming to rescue Israel. And so as this manifestation of power happens, this is actually the first physical miracle that these disciples would have seen. And so if you read in verse 11 with me, you'll see... The response. It says this, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory. It's interesting how it puts that, manifested his glory. It doesn't say manifested his power or did a cool miracle. No, it glorified, it made much of Jesus. That's what that means, manifested his glory. And what was the response? And his disciples believed in him. This was an important moment for these disciples, a moment of belief. But there's more to this than just symbolism and the belief of these disciples who lived 2,000 years ago. This story isn't just about those people. It's also here written for us. It's written so that we would believe. You see, thirdly, Jesus is glorified in our belief. When we read this story and we say, yes, I believe this to be true, If you remember what we read earlier in John 20, 31, it says, But these, as in these signs, even this sign in particular, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is the part where I need to point out a sad reality. And that is that people who saw these signs, many who saw these signs, not just this sign, but the ones that we'll read about in the coming weeks, chose not to believe. In fact, as you get to John 12, in verse 36 and 37, it says this, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. People rejected Jesus in this moment, in this period of time, but people still reject Jesus now. And we may sit here in this moment of time and say, well, I haven't seen miracles, I haven't seen, you know, 5,000 people being fed, or I haven't seen water turned into wine, or any of these other things. But we have all seen His power. Let's not deny that. Acts 17 puts it like this. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath and everything they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. The evidence is around us that there is a God, that He is powerful, and it is pointing us towards Him. When we see a sunset, when we see an intricate flower, when we hold a newborn baby, all of these things point us to the reality of God. And so we've all got to face this question that, that these people, even these disciples at this wedding were facing, and that is, what do we believe about Jesus? Is He the miracle-working Son of God, Savior of the world that He claimed to be, or is He just some nice guy with some great ideas and teachings about life? That's a pretty popular view. Many people think, oh yeah, I like kind of some of the things that Jesus said, or he seemed like a really nice man. Maybe even he was a prophet. But a nice guy doesn't claim to be the son of God. These signs, even this sign of water into wine is there to prove a point, and that is that Jesus is God above all things, even the matter, the molecules of water in a pot, in a jar. So what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I want to ask you to really think about that. And I know that many of you would say, yes, I believe. If that is you, I want to press an issue with you. And when I say with you, I mean myself as well. And that is this. Jesus, do we believe that Jesus is just as powerful and miraculous today? Hebrews 13 verse 8 leaves us no wiggle room when it comes to this because it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He was the same yesterday when this miracle happened, today, right now, and in the future as far as we can see. And so I want to press that issue with you and say, okay, if He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means He is miraculous, He is powerful. And if we don't believe that He is still miraculous and powerful, the legs, I believe, are totally cut out from underneath our faith. Let's not have a distorted view of Jesus. I spoke earlier about the story of Pride and Prejudice and how in that story... The main character, Elizabeth, her preconceptions, her prejudices are stripped away and what starts to form in their place is a new picture of this character, Mr. Darcy. And as this new picture starts to assemble, as she starts to understand who he really is, she falls head over heels in love with him. As she sees the real him, everything changes. And so the question that I I pull across here to ask us is, do we know the real Jesus? Many of us say, yes, I believe, but do we know the real, the powerful Jesus? I think many of us are content to have this image of Jesus as this man in a robe walking beside the Sea of Galilee, hugging children, telling stories, which he did all of those things. But He is also the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the God who was present at creation, speaking, and as He spoke, things literally came into being. He is the one who we believe will return in glory, and every eye will see Him, and the world will literally start to fall apart in that moment because He is so powerful, He is the one who in the book of Revelation is described as being in heaven and all these crazy beings, when they see him, they fall on their faces in worship and say, worthy is the lamb. He is divine. He is powerful. He is miraculous. And if all that is true, which I am 100% convinced it is, what does that mean for us? How does that view of Jesus, as powerful and miraculous as he is, impact us in our lives, in our marriages, in our singleness, in our parenting, our neighboring, our workplaces, in our wounding? If he is able to change the substance of matter, Surely, He is able to work in and transform our lives and even the dark areas of our lives. And so the challenge for us, and this isn't a challenge that's limited just to today, is to say, let's embrace and know this Jesus, truly know this Jesus for all that He is. Let's come to Him, and be satisfied by all that he is, because he alone is the one who can quench our deepest thirst. I'm convinced of that. And so the invitation is to come and to be satisfied in Jesus, even today. Let's pray. God, we just acknowledge together that even those of us who believe in you sometimes picture you as too small, too weak. And so, Lord, expand, lift our eyes to see you as you truly are, And Lord, as that happens, fill our hearts with a sense of awe and wonder and worship. May we, like those beings in heaven, have no other response than to to fall and say, worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. God, for anybody here today who has an area where they're struggling to believe that you are miraculous or powerful, Lord, may you convict them and bring healing in those areas, in those places. Lord, if there's anybody here even this morning who's struggling to even know if they believe, may they read these words and may they believe. May they hear these truths and may they believe even as we take some moments now to think through what these things mean in response. May there be a real sense of your work amongst us. May there be a sense of worship in this place, God. Thank you. Amen.